You know, in the book, I talk about well, life as this hourglass, a dark hourglass with sand in it. You don't know how much sand you have left. And so you tip that hourglass and no one knows when the sand's going to run out. You have to live the best life that you can today and know that it could last a long time as well. So keeping an eye on today and an eye on tomorrow, nurturing your relationships is a huge, huge part of that. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I am excited for today's episode as we have a repeat guest, Andrew Hallam. Andrew has been someone who I've followed for many, many years, and he was in episode number 41, and he's back to talk about his new book, Balance, How to Invest and Spend for Happiness, Health, and Wealth. And you know what? I have a free copy for you, for the listeners. If you go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, send me a screenshot, and I'll put your name into a draw, and next week, We'll draw a winner for Andrew's new book, and I'll send it directly to your house. So, leave a review, get a chance to win Andrew's wonderful book. If Andrew isn't being eaten by mosquitoes in a tropical jungle, when I talked to him, he was in Panama, or if Andrew isn't cycling up a hill during a downpour with his wife, or driving to Argentina in his van, he's speaking and writing about happiness and personal finance, and that's exactly what we talk about today in his new book, Balance. Andrew has been on many news media such as CNBC, the Wall Street Journal, and he's the first person to have a number one selling finance book on Amazon USA, Amazon Canada, and Amazon UAE. He writes for the Global Mail, Canadian Business, Asset Builder, Money Sense, and more. In today's episode, we talk about many things centered around this idea of happiness and money. What is the link or the correlation Andrew has done some fascinating research on the link, if any at all, about happiness and money, and he dives into that. Andrew talks about the joy and happiness he felt as he attempted, and I say attempted because it was a failed attempt, to drive from Canada to Argentina in his van with his wife. But he shares many of the valuable experiences along the way, such as meeting a rather interesting fellow named Casey Coleman. You'll hear about that conversation in the episode. Andrew also talks about this myth that success brings happiness. How to implement what he calls the four quadrants of life satisfaction and how we can use personal finances as a tool. That's an important part there, as just a tool to help pursue a life of satisfaction. I found it particularly interesting when Andrew dove into the difference between experiential happiness and reflective happiness, because I think it's really important that we understand these differences. Andrew has done a fantastic job looking at the research to validate the claims in this book, and I appreciate that. Andrew, I appreciate all the work you do. I hope everybody enjoys this wonderful conversation with Andrew Hallam. Andrew, welcome back to the show. 
Thanks very much, Sean. Pleasure to be here. I'm excited to have you back and this time to talk about your new book coming out. I want to dive into your book and the details within the book, but I want to first start with a gentleman you introduce in the book, and it's a story about him. And what I found interesting is throughout your travels of speaking around the world and all the people you've met in the personal finance industry, you could have chosen someone with a high profile name that maybe lured a whole bunch of people in to hear you tell a story about this gentleman. Instead, you picked a guy named Casey Coleman. I never knew who Casey Coleman was. I'm not sure if many other people know who he is, but you decided to start early in your book, a story about Casey. Can you talk about Casey and what impact he's had on your money story? Yeah. yeah, It's funny that you, of course, I've told so many stories about so many different people. And the fact that you focused in on Casey Coleman is pretty interesting. This dude is not a household name. (laughs) He lives in a car. People are wondering like, what's wrong with this guy? I'll tell you how I ended up meeting him. My my wife and I were traveling in uh, a Winnebago Travada. So we bought a camper van and our intention was to drive it from Canada to the tip of Argentina. And we had no time frame. We had no schedule. As you know, I can work online, do my thing. And so we were just exploring as we went. And we ended up stopping at a, at a friend's place in California. And we met this guy there who was sleeping in a car in our friend's driveway. He wasn't asleep at the time, but that's what he was there. He was sleeping there at night. He's a 77-year-old guy. His posture was ramrod straight. He looked incredibly fit. I started chatting with him, and it seemed like he was probably, in my sense, you know, getting a sense of who is this guy. I thought maybe he's a retired business professor. Uh, I found that he actually does, does have a business degree. He qualified for the Olympic trials as a swimmer years, years into the past. He was now into meditation and yoga. I found out that he'd been retired for like about 29 years and he never earned a lot of money. He is the ultimate minimalist. So for him, he just felt like he didn't need things to make him happy. He epitomized what I call my, my four quadrants of success. And, and, and when I talk about balance, when I talk about this book, one of the things that and I did allude to this, I think, last time when you and I were talking towards the tail end of our last interview. I talked about how it was so incomplete or so warped when we look often at somebody and suggest that they are successful. Because what success means in our mind is often the wrong thing. It's, it's money. We relate success to money or career. That surgeon is really successful. You know, because he's a surgeon. He's, he drives a Ferrari and he's got a big house on the hill. He might be a success, but I wouldn't define it based on his career or his money. Because when we ask ourselves why we do anything in life, why we do anything in life, ultimately, if we continue to ask ourselves why, or we continue to ask somebody else why, their response comes down to life satisfaction. I want to be happy. Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to be generous? Why do you want this career? Why do you want to buy that car? Ultimately, people will tell you I want it to feel secure or I want to, to enjoy it. I want to feel whole. I want to feel good. I want to be happy. So it all comes down to life satisfaction. So what I did in the book Balance was I identified four components of life satisfaction. One is having enough money. 
The second is having good relationships with other people. The third is having good health. And the fourth is having a sense of purpose. And what I found was that Casey Coleman, ironically, fit my definition of a successful person. Here's a guy who just lived in a car for 27 or 28 years. And he yet fit my definition of success. So I'm going to back up just a little bit and tell you that when I was doing that, that camper trip, when my wife and I were driving through Mexico and Guatemala and El Salvador in this van, we would often get, I would get requests to speak in different countries. And so we would store the van somewhere and whether it's Mexico or Belize and we'd fly off and I would give some talk uh, often at some swanky corporate thing and they'd you know, fly us their business class, put us up in a five-star hotel. We'd meet the CEO, we'd have dinner with them and kind of hang with them for a while. And I recognized something kind of interesting. And it was that conventionally these people who were often inviting me in, these people who I was whining and dining with, they were nice people, but they didn't have the twinkle in the eye that a Casey Coleman had. They didn't have as much balance. Generally, they worked really, really hard. They often didn't have great relationships or time spent with family because they worked so many hours. And they were sort of obsessive about one thing. So often they weren't as healthy or as fit. And it just seemed like really lopsided. But our society will call someone like that successful and someone like Casey Coleman not successful. Where the reality is, I'm talking to one of Casey's longest friends. Her name is Ingrid. I asked her about Casey and she goes, I got to tell you, that guy is the most consistently happy person I have ever known in my life. And she had known him for decades. Most consistently happy person. Why do we do what we do? Why do we pursue what we pursue? We pursue them for life satisfaction. Casey Coleman had life satisfaction, has life satisfaction. So for him, his standards are definitely extreme. I'm not suggesting people should live in a car. What I am suggesting is perhaps we should look at behavioral science in terms of what is it that enhances our life satisfaction? Because that truly is the primary goal of why we do things that we do. So with Casey, he, he had enough money. I mean, he just, he didn't spend money on things. And so he had more than enough money that was coming to him from an annuity that he'd invested in. Plus he had social security. So, I mean, this guy was actually saving a thousand dollars a month from an annuity and social security. He had health. He has great friendships. He goes and visits his friends. They love to see him because he's just such a cool guy. He's generous. He's a great conversationalist. And he spends most of his time living about a mile from the rim of the Grand Canyon in his car. So there's another place called Kaibab National Park as well. He likes to sort of split his time between those two places. And on one occasion, when we were at Ingrid's place, we we're probably there for about a week. When we met Casey, he asked us if we wanted to go on this adventure with him. And we're like, yeah, let, let's do it. So we followed him into the Kaibab National Park. We drove up these dirt roads and we camped with him for several days. And we would walk, like in the mornings, he gets up and he likes to go for these like three-hour walks. And we just walk and talk. And I'm telling you, Sean, this dude was wise. And he always had a twinkle in his eye. He was always so quick to laugh. 
He had great friendships with other people. He was always helping people out. That was the coolest thing. That is the coolest thing. And so although I'm not putting Casey Coleman up as sort of that on, on a pedestal whereby everyone needs to be like this guy and move into a Honda Odyssey or whatever, but it's really worth looking at in terms of how is it that we measure success? And maybe, maybe, just maybe, we don't quite measure it the right way. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And that last statement, maybe we don't measure it quite the right way. I think it speaks to a lot of the, the thinking that I'm doing right now and certainly to your journey on, with your new book. Speaking of that, measuring, perhaps not measuring the right way, it's interesting when you talked about success. And as you were talking about it, I thought, yeah, like when we think about like going to school, university, the, the output that we measure is what kind of job are you going to get? How much money are you going to make? It's never around to use your words. How much life satisfaction can you create out of whatever chosen profession? So I think Casey's story is a really good reflection on those to your four-legged stool. We need enough money, relationships, health, and purpose. And so I, I want to go to you, Andrew. And you, I've been following your work. When I say you, your, your actual story on coming up with this idea of balance. And I've been following you for a while. Millionaire Teacher, this book right here is probably one of the most gifted books I've given to other people. I've always had you as the go-to for low-cost investing, the powers of compound interest, the stock market, why active investing is not nearly as good as <laughs> passive. And these are all great concepts you've had in your book. However, I've always felt you've had an undertone in your books, especially Millionaire Teacher, then that undertone seemed to be a curiosity to explore items that kind of transcend the actual technical elements of low-cost investments, for example. And I, yeah, I feel like you've always had this undertone. And for example, rule number four in your book was conquer the enemy in the mirror, which had nothing to do with the technical part, more about our human behavior. And now you go even a step further in January 22 this year, 2022, you're releasing this book, Balance. I want to focus on the title, Balance, and why you decided to pick that title for a book that you are releasing at this point in your, in your life story. If you ask any author about titling a book, and it's, it's hard. Like I, I would come up with all kinds of ideas, and I'd pass them on to the publisher, and they'd be like, no, 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 we don't like that. They actually wanted to call it Millionaire Teacher's Guide to Living Well. But I wanted to separate myself from that, that actual title. I wanted something different. I wanted it to reflect succinctly what I really, truly thought about life in itself. So many people will say to me, well, you love personal finance, Andrew. You're a personal finance writer. You, know, you like money and you love personal finance. And, and I say to that, that's interesting, but it's usually, Sean, only people that don't know me well will actually say that. And so the people that know me well know that, no, I don't love personal finance. I love life. That's what I love. And so personal finance is a tool. So it's a component to having a successful life. And you have to manage it appropriately. So that's the important part here. So when I look at behavioral studies on life satisfaction, what I find so interesting is what we think makes us satisfied. Often, we, we really don't know what makes us satisfied. You know, so Daniel Kahneman talks about that, the behavioral economist who won the Nobel Prize for behavioral economics. He says, we don't know what makes us happy. So I'll give you an example here. You take something like a, a new car. And you ask someone, why'd you buy that? Oh, I love it. It drives so well. It feels awesome. And so 
why do you own it? Why did you buy it? Oh, I just like it. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel happy. Keep asking that question. And they'll say, it makes me feel good. Right? Bottom line, makes me feel good. So, all right. That's what we call reflective happiness. Or that's what Daniel Kahneman calls reflective happiness. It's almost a justification. Right? So, if we, though, can actually measure, imagine hooking somebody up who drives a Ferrari or drives a top, top of the line BMW. And you were to literally hook them up with all kinds of sensors on a daily basis to measure how much they're actually enjoying driving that on a daily basis versus someone who is hooked up to similar senses driving a 10-year-old Honda Civic. Zero difference. It sounds crazy because you're like, wait, 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 wait. You know, that car is going to be fast. It's going to be so much fun. And no, based on studies done in Michigan State University that were replicated in Germany, they'd ask people how much they actually enjoyed their last driving experience. They would ask people this on a routine basis, daily. How much do you enjoy your drive today? How much do you enjoy your drive today? How much do you enjoy your drive today? They asked also what kind of car they had, what kind of car they drove. And of course, there were subjects here didn't have a clue what they were really looking for because they probably asked them about their washing machines as well. They asked all kinds of crazy questions. But what they were really wanting to find out is that do people who have new cars or high-end cars actually enjoy the driving experience any more than people who have low-end used cars, as an example. Reflectively, they say they do. However, when it comes to these questions being asked, how much did you enjoy your drive? The reality comes through and we're, we get a strong measurement of an experiential happiness instead of reflective. So experiential happiness is core. It's real. It's what's real. And based on hedonic adaptability, when we buy something, we get used to it quickly. It becomes like a sugar fix. So you know, if, you, if you and I decided we buy, you know, we buy a couple of 9-11s today, and you and I went to the, the lot together, we bought, each bought 9-11, and we drove it around. First of all, at test drive, we'd be totally focused on it. We'd be like, wow, this is awesome, Sean. I mean, it's tight. The acceleration's amazing. It goes around corners like it's on rails. But after a while, for both of us, after we purchase it, and only be a matter of weeks, before that car just becomes something we get used to. And when we're driving now, we're not focused on the car. We're focused on that weird guy who's running across the street with like pink underwear on his head or, oh, I got, just got cut off or am I going to be late for work or oh, I have to pick up my son at a soccer game in after school. I hope I'm going to make it, you know, in time. You're focused on all this other stuff. So the, the essence of, you know, balance for me when I, when I look at this is truly looking at the behavioral characteristics that truly enhance our lives. And how does that relate to money? So the research is so solid on this that material acquisitions and upgrades almost never enhance our life satisfaction. But money spent on doing cool stuff with people, actual experiences, especially when it's with people we love and respect, is massive. And, and the reason is that those experiences become memories and those memories become part of our identity and so when you think about like a campfire analogy like sometime down the road you're with a bunch of friends and you're hanging out at a campfire and you're talking about stuff from 10 years ago or five years ago or last year you're not ever going to be talking about the new iphone you bought in 2023 you're just not it's not going to come up instead instead of spending that money on that 1200 iphone or whatever it costs you and some friends rent a cabin by the lake and you go fishing and swimming. And you're going to talk about that, the fun stuff that you did together. 
this is why I loved sort of putting this whole package together in balance. I talked about investing. I talked about effective investing. But I really wanted to bring everything together in terms of how money affects life satisfaction. I feel like when you talk about that campfire, I would much rather talk to Casey Coleman than a, a high CEO who works 80 hours a week. Because <laughs> Casey, I, I want to see the twinkle, to use your word earlier, the twinkle in Casey Coleman's eyes. Because I feel like he's just an interesting guy with a big burly beard, but I don't know what he looks like. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the book does such a good job of incorporating those four elements of the stool. And I'm going to repeat them again. We need enough money. And yeah, you do a wonderful job explaining that. And I want to get into some of the, the investing part because we don't want to ignore it. And you talk about a lot of research. I really appreciate how much research is in your book. And you talk a lot about research and we'll probably get to that, but uh, the satiation level of money and happiness. I want to go to, to the one stool of relationships. And I thought of that because sitting around that campfire doing memorable experiences with people that we appreciate, like you said, create meaning and identity in our lives. Yeah, I want to go to relationships here. And, and it made me think of this last night. As December's coming tomorrow, my kids want to pull out the Christmas books. And last night, we were reading this book called uh, Christmas in the Country. It's a Donald, Donald Duck book with uh, Scrooge in it. And of course, we all know Scrooge is that thrifty, miserly, grumpy man. And I was just like Googling around about Scrooge and his origin story. And I found from one of his books, I think it's called Bear Mountain. There's a quote that, that's going to tie into my question for you. And it's Scrooge's quote that says, here I sit in this big, lonely dump waiting for Christmas to pass. Bah, that silly season when everybody loves everyone else. A curse on it. Me, I'm different. Everybody hates me. I hate everybody. And I bring this up because we talk, we're talking about the value of relationships. And in your book, you talk a lot about this value of relationships and what it can do to our overall being. What did you learn either before the book or through research about the value relationships can hold over our well-being? They're so essential that let's look at just longevity, for example. I mean, we all want to live long, happy lives. And the relationships we have with other people is the number one variable for longevity. There's a, a guy named Dan Wootner who wrote a book called The Blue Zones. People have been studying areas of the world where people live freakishly long lives. And so the first what was really came to people's attention, the first place was a place called uh, Rosetto in Pennsylvania. It was a small town. A bunch of Italians had moved there a couple of hundred years ago, settled there. And they brought a lot of the old Italian customs with them. And they settled. They had very much an open door type policy where they were always in and out of each other's homes, kind of raising each other's kids. It was tight as a community. The researchers were fascinated with this place because people there seemed to live a really long time, like really long time. So scientists descended on it and said, what is it about this place? Is it the water? No. Nope. Same water as, uh, as all these other surrounding towns. Is it, their, is it the food that they're eating? Is it, is it the, the amount of exercise they're getting? Well, no, not really. What they found was it had to do with the relationships they had with their community and with each other. This was huge and it actually affects humans on a cellular level. Like we actually need love and great relationships to survive and to thrive. And what ended up happening was in the 1980s, when a lot of the younger people decided that they wanted a taste of the American dream, they started to buy more expensive cars. They started to moving 
out of the, the tight nucleus and building larger homes outside that region. And before that, there were some people in Rosetta who had money, but they considered it distasteful to buy something more expensive than their neighbors, which I found so interesting. Like they felt, they figured if they could afford a more expensive car, it was kind of like rubbing it in the nose of other people. So they didn't want to do that. Eventually, this whole fabric broke down. And today, because of the pursuit of the American dream, these people don't live any longer today than people in a typical American town. So back to Dan Boothner, who studied blue zones. And they're called blue zones where these people live a long time. And they're, they're, there's one uh, in the Koya Peninsula in Costa Rica. There's uh, one in Sardinia. There's a, there are a couple of pockets in California. There's Okinawa, Japan. All of these people have different kinds of lifestyles, different kinds of diets. Some of them are vegetarian. Some of them eat a lot of meat. Some of them actually have a fairly high smoking population. They found that the social connectivity, and this is why I think COVID was so hard for us, for all people. And life expectancy actually dropped in the United States in 2020. And so it's really interesting looking at life expectancy tables there. And it really did show that, I mean, obviously there were people that, that got hit by the pandemic. There were also people who died of loneliness through the isolation. Like a lot of the people in nursing homes, they died of isolation. They died from loneliness. The people weren't coming to visit them. We need this to, to survive and to thrive. We need connections with each other. And so what I think is so important here, Sean, is that we often set professional goals. We set academic goals. They're all achievement-oriented goals. We set physical goals, fitness goals. I want to run a marathon, whatever that might be. And we have busy lives, no doubt. Everybody does. But how often do we sit down and say, let's set some relationship goals here. Let's see how we can actually, like we would do with anything, let's make it measurable. Let's try to make it attainable, measurable, something that we, we, we write down and we make ourselves accountable for. The, the Harvard study of adult development is this eight-plus decade-long study that was done and is continuing because many of the people that, that began are actually still alive. They tested them by asking them all kinds of questions every single year. They asked their family questions. They're asking their offspring questions. So the study is extending beyond a bunch of Harvard, Harvard students, male students, from eight decades ago. It's going into their families now. They've added a, an, an inner city element, Boston inner, inner city element as well. And they're putting these people through like today, modern technology, MRI tubes, they're testing them. And they're asking them all sorts of questions. They're really trying to figure out what's the key to life satisfaction. What is the key? And they have it. They know what it is. And more than genetics, more than money, it's the relationships you have with other people. That's the key to the happiest life. So we need to set that goal. Why are we prioritizing a lot of these other goals when we have to make sure that we do let that one slide? Because, you know, when people get busy, they often let that sort of thing slide. In the book, I talk about Bronnie Ware, the palliative care nurse. And she wrote a book called The Regrets of the Dying. And she worked with dying people for a dozen years in Australia. And she would ask them questions. Like, what do you regret? And Sean... No one ever regretted. You know, no one ever said, I wished I worked harder. No one ever said, I, I wished I, I had the courage to, to go for that job. No one ever said, I wished I got a PhD. Their regrets were all relationship-based. So they were feeling like 
they want it to be true. So the relationship too is relationship that they have with their friends and the relationships that they have with themselves to be true to themselves, stay in touch with old friends, nurture their relationships. When it comes to the end, that's when clarity often hits people. That's when they often see things most clearly. What is it that they regret? And I think that we shouldn't need to be on our deathbed before we actually see the truth. And it's like when somebody asked me, you know, when I got cancer in 2008, oh, I can't tell you how many people said to me, Sean, like, wow, you must realize now, like, how precious life is. And I don't want to insult people who, for them, a life-threatening illness becomes that realization. But I was insulted, Sean. I was insulted every time someone said that. Because I'm like, if there's one thing I know for sure, and it's that I'm going to die. And my loved ones are going to die. And none of us know when the expiration date is. So, you know, in the book, I talk about, I talk about life as this hourglass, a dark hourglass with sand in it. You don't know how much sand you have left. And so you tip that hourglass and no one knows when the sand's going to run out. You have to live the best life that you can today and know that it could last a long time as well. So keeping an eye on today and an eye on tomorrow, nurturing your relationships is a huge, huge part of that. Thank you for that, Andrew. And um, I won't edit out that section because I, I, I did read that you once got edited out for being too, uh, too specific on a certain word when you're, someone asked you a similar question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was a Channel News Asia interview. And it was the only part that was, that was edited out. My, you know, and again, to be fair, it was, it was unfair of me to say it. But sometimes the truth can be unfair. And I said, anyone who needs a life-threatening illness to recognize that one day they're going to die is an idiot. And I don't care what their IQ is. They're an idiot. It was unfortunate maybe that I didn't use that word because they did cut that out of the interview. But there's a very uncomfortable element of truth there. You know, Andrew, as you speak, you could hear just how reflective you've been in your, in your journey through all the different experiences you have had. And I appreciate you sharing that with us because it's just so, it's just too bad that we have this social construct, this narrative that we have to spend the best hours of our lives. So many days are sorry, years of our lives working for this thing that we call money. And of course we need it. We need money to make our basic needs met. We, we know that money makes life easier up to that point. But we spend so much of our time obsessing over this money, despite that we know that these like 80-year studies are available, but yet we get primed into thinking that the social construct of, construct of chasing money is so important. And in your book, you talk about research around priming effects. I wonder if we can go into that. And, and, and I think as humans, we're, we're impressionable. The human condition is to be impressionable because we learn from that. But how is this priming effect of money influencing us from doing the things that are so important? Well, you look at advertising for one, it's huge. So if you look at an ad, um, and I remember when I was in grade, uh, not when I was in grade seven, but when I, I taught grade seven, my part of, uh, part of the English unit was, I brought in a, a media unit, advertising unit, and I would show pictures and ads. And I would ask the kids, what primal pole are they trying to grab you with here? It was, it was always related to friendship or happiness or sex, right? That was it. Friendship, happiness, sense of belonging, sex. They were relationship-like poles. That's what they were. I was a drink, Coca-Cola, everything, everything, like every ad, every ad, 
And it was an ad for lip balm, ad for Coca-Cola, an ad for a fancy car. When you looked at it, it always had to do with one of those factors. So once people, and it's easy for people to start getting, I mean, advertising came very sophisticated in the 50s. They realized people weren't really buying stuff. People were not buying what they didn't need. So advertisers figured, well, we've got to ramp this up. We've got to get into human psychology, get into the mind of people and convince them to buy stuff that they don't necessarily need. And, and hopefully that will become a norm for them. And it has become a norm now. So it becomes a norm so much so that if you're not the, the one buying it, you actually feel potentially like a little bit of an oddball because everyone around you is doing it. So they've established a lifestyle. So there's that element of finding with the advertising and then the momentum based on what you're seeing in society around you. And I, I'd like to bring it back to that behavioral science on happiness. And it's that this stuff, it doesn't make us happier. Money spent on experiences do. So to be simple with this, and I love the simplicity because it, it just becomes so clear. Instead of buying like normal people buy, you can actually save more money and spend more money on cool experiences. And when, when you have that more, when you have more money and you're investing more money, you have some choices that a lot of other people don't have. So I met this, I've met loads of families in my travels who've decided that they're going to take a year off uh, and do something really cool with their kids. It doesn't have to be a year off. It could be a summer that you do with your kids. But these people that would quit their jobs, spending a year in Costa Rica, helping out at an orphanage or traveling around the world in a boat. And these aren't rich people. Like these are people who are like police officers, nurses, just, you know, regular everyday middle income earners. But when you start talking to them, you notice some really interesting common traits. And one was that they didn't buy stuff. They didn't have an interest in that. And they knew inherently that stuff does not improve your life satisfaction, but actual experiences, especially experiences spent with the family, absolutely do. I just go back to what you said earlier. They create our identity. And I think that, you know, as humans, we hold on to an identity and it's so powerful, much more than that couch or whatever that stuff that you're alluding to. What have experiences meant to you personally? I, I look at your story and traveling around the world for many, many years, deciding to take a van from Canada to Argentina. That's quite the experience. But for you personally, what have these experiences done for your life and your personal life satisfaction? I've met so many people and so many places have become home. Home is, I think, where you feel loved. That's what home really means. And so for me, when I, when I visit Canada and I spend time with my family there, I've got my, my parents are, are there, my brother and sister are there, nieces and nephews. It feels like home because there are people there who we love and who love us. There is a community in Mexico. We've been there several times. We have great friendships there. Going there feels like going home. Like it's a weird thing, Sean, but driving up over that hill and coming down into that, that area of, of Lake Chapala, into the town of Ahiki, there's this feeling of home there. For Pelly and for me, Singapore also feels like home because we spent so much time there and we have such great friends there. We didn't really plan to have this you know, crazy nomadic life. We thought we'd take one year off in 2014. So my wife and I were both working in Singapore. And we figured we'd just take one year off to travel. 
then one year led to two, which led to six, which led to seven. And <laughs> we're just we're just kind of still going. But man, I learned a lot, Sean, from the people that I would meet in terms of also how much money do people need. And I would meet people that were perhaps they were early retirees, but they were early retirees because they had chosen to spend winters where it was cheap, for example. So they wouldn't have had enough money to be early retirees in Canada. But if they sacrificed their winters and they chose to spend three or four months a year in Thailand, renting a place on the beach, big sacrifice, they were actually able to retire earlier because during that three or four month period, they spent so much less. And I'd meet these people that were obviously doing little bits of like part-time work in different places. And the whole concept of how much money do people need to be financially free really went out the window for me. Like I'd been giving talks and showing people how much money they need to retire or to be financially free. And then I'd see people that had this completely, what I thought of out of the box solution. They were really, really happy. They had more than enough money for their lifestyle. I'm not talking about like, yeah, and there are certain people that just float through on day-to-day basis who are pretty, pretty clueless. And that's kind of scary. They don't have anything in the bank, but I'm talking about people that like they do have money in the bank and they did prioritize their experiences. They didn't buy stuff. And that's the thing that it seems to be that a common denominator here, the more materialistic we become, the more unhappy we become as well. There's a just a whole array of studies that support that notion. So I learned a lot from these people, Sean, a lot from talking to them, asking them questions. And I hope to continue to learn. Through your work, your books, I continuously find myself learning from your experience. And something that I do see from you is that, I guess this ties to one of the legs on the stool, is that you don't just retire or you don't just go down to Panama and sit on the beach, you're, you're still doing your blogs, you're writing books. And it seems like that purpose leg of yours is, is very profound. And I, I would imagine that's a big part of, of your life and what you've seen that can bring satisfaction, life satisfaction to others. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, again, what it does is I don't recommend anyone retire fully retire early. And, and the reason is that you disengage once you do that. The nice thing about continuing to work, say, part-time or doing something is that you're engaging with different social demographics or different age demographics, for sure. And we need that. Like our brains need to be challenged. We need it because if we don't use it, we lose it. And our brains are exactly the same. So people end up retiring early and fully retiring early have higher cases of dementia, higher cases of Alzheimer's. So this, is a, this is a medical reality. And so the idea of, you know, dreaming of hanging it up at age 45 and doing nothing but hanging on the beach and playing golf is not a good goal because also we are social beings. And as much as sometimes, you know, when we're working, we're at work, we're doing some kind of job, sometimes we're, we end up associating with or having to deal with people that we, that might be difficult. That's all part of life too. It's that, it's the importance, I think, of just that total integration of being able to work with other people continually and using your brain to negotiate how you're going to deal too with, with social challenges. Like this stuff is just so important. It's, it's one of the reasons that it suggested that the Japanese live so long. And I mentioned this in the book Balance too, where they have these silver haired centers and the people in Japan, right? Don't typically have a goal to retire. They, they might have a goal to work part-time, 
So when they retire from their job as lawyers or accountants or doctors, they, they often go to these silver hair centers where they, they pick up these, and there are 1,600 of them in Japan. They pick up these part-time jobs, and it might be like sweeping the park. You know, and so you could be you know, you know, on some swing with your kid, and there could be some older guy or woman there who's a multi-multi-millionaire who's sweeping the park with a broom and just chatting with people. And, and research suggests that, that not only does that keep that person physically moving and active, but with that engagement, they go to the Silver Hair Center, they talk to people, they figure out what job they get this week or this month, and it gives them that purpose and that reason to get up in the morning. And that's another thing we need on a cellular level. We need a reason to get up in the morning. And so if there are people who, on whatever light level, are counting on us, this is actually good for us. I mean, if you look like evolutionary speaking for hundreds of thousands of years, retirement wasn't even a thing. We, we work till we die. And I mean, this idea of retirement of sitting on the beach is a relatively new concept. And, and to your point, the, having that meaning purpose, meaningful relationships, I think is, is so important. So Andrew, a lot of our conversation has been around relationships. We've talked about health, purpose. We've talked a bit about having enough money. I want to look at that leg of our stool because maybe we don't have a balanced stool right now because we've avoided the money conversations intentionally. But when it comes to money, let's talk about some of the research that you pulled out and explained very well in your book around how much money do we need? Is there a certain point of money that we we need? And I'll let you continue on that. And then you can go into how do we actually start to invest our money in a way that doesn't blow up our brain with complexity? Well, I think the first part about how much money we need is always relative. It's always going to be relative to where it is that you're choosing to be. And that's why it's just, when I see those studies that say, or I see those, I guess they're clickbait articles that say, you can't retire with a million anymore. You need more than that. It doesn't look at, it doesn't look at, it's not nuanced. You know, that's just dumb because What's that person got also? Is there a defined benefit pension coming in as well? Like, is there some kind of you know, Canada pension plan coming in? What other sources of, of income do we have? Does this person spend part of the year wanting to travel five star and, and fly first class? Or do they want to like, rent a hut in Mexico for six months a year? Like, this is why personal finance is so personal. It's so relative to the actual individual. I, I do find it really interesting at the, the studies on and in relative income levels and how we actually feel when we're surrounded by people who make more money than us. No matter how much money we make, when we're surrounded by people who make more, that actually alters us on a cellular level as well. It alters our life satisfaction and it actually alters our health. But that's so, so interesting. So the, the idea that you're stretching yourself, and some people do this, like they'll stretch themselves to live in a neighborhood they can just barely afford, but they think, and again, this is one of those, those things coming back to what people don't really know what will make them happy. don't really know what's good for them, but they'll often stretch themselves to live in this neighborhood and they can barely afford. That is so bad for them on so many levels, not only the financial level, but the health level as well. So people listening, we've talked a lot about relationships, well-being, life satisfaction, someone might be thinking, well, how, how do I invest or save or what do I do with my money? And in, in your book, Balance, and, and of course, Millionaire Teacher, you have a lot of good insights. And I mean, this question alone could be its own podcast, but maybe to just simplify it, 
if someone is listening to this, we're like, okay, I like this. I want to find my purpose, but I'm scared of figuring out how to invest my money. What would be an answer you would give that person who's looking for some simplicity? I would say a diversified portfolio of exchange-traded funds or index funds if you're living in the States. You can just do it directly through Vanguard. That will give you the highest statistical odds of success. In doing that, you'll beat 90% of professional money managers over any 10-year period. And making your investments automatic. So don't look at the economy or watch investment news and try and figure out when is a good time. Invest when you have the money. And if possible, just make it an automatic withdrawal from your account directly, if possible, into an investment. So that you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to see it actually happening. You're not fretting about it. And you know, you could use something super simple like a robo-advisory firm. They build you a diversified portfolio of ETFs. If you have a, a fee-based financial advisor who builds you portfolios of ETFs, again, same kind of thing where you can set up automatic transfers. If you want to buy your own ETFs, I recommend the all-in-one portfolio of ETFs because they make the process so simple. And we mustn't mistake simplicity for something subpar. When I say they make this process simple, it's simple in a superior way because the research suggests that people in all-in-one funds don't end up speculating to the same extent. They don't end up getting as nervous. Well, well, what ETF do I have to buy this month? They often have a set it and forget it mentality. They don't think about the markets. They just continue to add money every month. As a result of that, on a risk-adjusted basis, they outperform 90% of professional investors decade after decade after decade. And those of you who are listening to me might say, well, I want to be in that top 10%. There's obviously someone who's in that top 10%. And I'll say, yes, there is, but it's not going to be the same person in decade one as it is in decade two. So your best bet is to decide to stay in that 90th percentile, continue to add money to that diversified portfolio of ETFs or index funds, and just stay the course and never even look at the market levels. I really appreciate that that answer. And the simplicity is so important because we can get distracted. We could Google and try to research. And there's that false illusion that if I research, maybe I know what I'm doing. And it actually reminds me of a conversation we had before we were recording about bikes. We were talking about aluminum frames versus carbon frames and 19 pounds versus 17 pounds. And I had said to you, my triathlon coach is like, before you think about upgrading your bike, don't skip a workout. <laughs> Basically, focus on your fitness and then maybe you can look up upgrading your bike. And I think that notion kind of summarizes this conversation that we're having is that we spend a little bit of time talking about the investments and we're sure we can talk about more and they're important. Don't get me wrong to get that proper portfolio, but it can be done through these robo-advisors. But I find often we distract ourselves with trying to figure it out as a way to avoid doing the inner work that is required to find out what is our purpose, what is meaningful in our lives. I don't know if you have anything to comment on that, but I often find that money can actually be a distractor for the things that are actually really important. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another reason why the less we think about it, the better. If we are thinking about investing too much, we actually take on some of those characteristics that you described with Scrooge. Scrooge thought about money. It made him miserable. And the more we think about money, 
the more obsessed we become with it, the more it drags down our internal spirits as well. So the idea of just, if you can set it, forget it, don't even look. I mean, I love the Fidelity study that Fidelity wanted, the, the giant mutual fund company wanted to find out which its best investors were. Like, who are they? What, what's their age group? What's their level of education? Um, are they people who are always following the economy and moving in and out of funds? Fidelity found they were actually people who forgotten they even had accounts with Fidelity or they were dead. I mean, so investing really is like a bar of soap, right? In the shower, the more you mess with it, the smaller it gets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think this brings us full circle is find a way we can start saving the, to your point, automate, and then really focus on those relationships, health, and our purpose. And, and perhaps we can then aspire to live a balanced life. My last question, I asked you this question in May, and I'm going to have an adaptation to it. However old your life expectancy is for you personally, say you know it's coming and you're a few days away from that day, and you decide to write a letter to, to whomever. It could be the world, it could be a specific person, it could be Casey Coleman, about what you learned, and now you got to <laughs> learn from now until you are set to pass away when you're writing this letter about living a balanced life. What would you put in there? And so this is from now till then. So it hasn't happened. <laughs> you know what I would do? Hey, I would take the book Balance and I wouldn't write that letter. I'd just ship it to them. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing though. You know, when, when it comes down to like a nugget of something that I've learned and if I were to be able to pass something on to somebody younger or older that I think is extremely helpful and it would be to spend at least twice as much time listening to people as you do speaking to people because we don't learn when we're speaking we learn when we're listening wonderful thank you i i couldn't agree anymore and i feel like the more silence we have the more opportunity we have to reflect on these important things that we've been talking about now before i let you go i've been so curious to know this trip from canada to argentina where you said it was a failed attempt how far did you make it (laughs) We got to the border of Nicaragua and there was a civil war, civil skirmishes that had, that had started to erupt and it was getting a bit hairy. And we wondered whether we should just go. Nicaragua is not a big country. And so on a single tank of gas, we could have driven across the country without stopping. And so there was a French couple that, filled their RV with fuel and they basically did the cannonball run across the country. And the people that are into this sort of thing, as with any group, you get these online forums, these Facebook groups, Pan American Facebook Travelers group. And it's fascinating to see like what other people are doing. And this this French guy, I did it. You know, I drove through and my wife and I looked at each other and went, you know what, let's just save this for another year. So we ended up spending 17 months in this thing and it was was an amazing experience. we do want to take another run at it. And so what I think we might do now is because we've really seen Central America now, and my wife and I did a, in 2020, early 2020, we did a, a cycling trip just before the pandemic went crazy. We spent six weeks cycling around Costa Rica, which was incredible. And of course, now we've, we're in Panama. So Central America, we've pretty much, not that we've seen everything, but we've seen a fair bit. At some stage, we might fly down to perhaps Colombia which is that it's really not that far from where I am right now. Columbia is probably about 100 kilometers from where I am now. 
So we might fly, say, from here to Columbia and actually pick up a camperized van or a simple RV there and drive that down to Argentina. Wow. You'll have to keep your followers posted on your YouTube channel because that, that's fascinating. Good for you guys. I should probably be writing more about this sort of stuff than finance because it's a, it's a heck of a lot more interesting for me to talk about. <laughs> it's a heck of a lot more exciting in my mind to get a reading. <laughs> well, I, it, it all ties into the same because to go back to our first conversation on what is success and to your point about life satisfaction, all of this, these little moments add to our, our life story. It's fun to be, you know, be able to weave this stuff into my books because I recognize, yeah, it's, it's unique for sure. Like some of the things that obviously my wife and I are doing and it's unique for us. We're learning along the way and it's fun to be able to share that with other people too. Yeah. Well, Andrew, where can people find more information about you? When does Balance officially come out? I know pre-orders are available, I believe right now. Yeah, thanks. Pre-orders are available now. People can see my writing, my weekly writing at andrewhelm.com. And I have links there for purchase links for balance with different retailers as well. So the book gets released January 18th. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing with us. And I, I sincerely mean it. Your work has had a big meaning and impact on me. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode with Andrew Hallam. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I really appreciate Andrew's focus on life satisfaction. Outside of the numbers, we have a lot of things that we want to do in this lifetime. And I appreciate his hourglass analogy. His time is one thing that we can't get back. So thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this time with me and Andrew Hallam. And if you want a free copy of Andrew's book, please leave a review, send me a screenshot, and I'll enter you in to win a free copy. Until next week, have yourself a good one.